there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Here, I've got an experiment for you, safety glasses on. By the end of this century, if emissions keep rising, the average temperature on Earth could go up another four to eight degrees. What I'm saying is the planet's on fucking fire. There are a lot of things we could do to put it out. Are any of them free? No, of course not. Nothing's free, you idiots. Grow the fuck up. You're not children anymore. I didn't mind explaining photosynthesis to you when you were 12, but you're adults now, and this is an actual crisis. Got it? Safety glasses off, motherfuckers. Okay, I'm sure by now folks have heard that the capital of the Northwest Territories, Yellowknife, a city of about 20,000 people, have been told to evacuate under a wildfire evacuation order. They have until noon today, which is Friday, August the 18th, to completely leave the city. I'm talking they're emptying out the prisons and the hospitals and everyone has got to get out of there. They are not alone. Kelowna, B.C. also has portions under evacuation orders. They've already lost quite a few structures in West Kelowna. I've seen videos of folks in the city of Kelowna. Like, obviously, both of these places and the surrounding communities have not just evacuated, but they've been dealing with weeks and weeks of the worst air quality imaginable and seeing the glow of the fire increasingly getting closer and closer. And now the people of Kelowna are seeing flames come over the hills and are just, the rest of them are just essentially waiting for the order to get out of there. In this day and age, the response unfolds in real time, right? We can see videos from people trying to evacuate, get firsthand accounts of what's happening. And there's a lot about these evacuations, I think, that's got me particularly riled up to include it in this week's rant, not just from the climate justice perspective that, you know, urban centers are clearly being impacted. One only has to go a week earlier to Maui to see the devastation that was there in in Lahaina in the inability to evacuate in time and just the loss of life and livelihood that's happening to these wildfires. We did an episode, Santiago, about smoke. And you were kind of under the impression that that level of impact to large centers would have a psychological effect on people, particularly those who can make a difference. And I'm not talking about activists because we're already on board, but capital, you know, the need to do something to prevent loss, even if it's not loss of life, right? These psychopaths. It's a loss of infrastructure, damage, costs a lot to mitigate, you know, even if you're talking about uh, the rescue and the evacuation. I mean, this is costly. 
do you think do you think these fires are any more of a wake up call than when we did our episode catching fire? It seems like unfortunately people are getting very used to it, I think. I I feel like people aren't talking about it that much. It's just one of those things where I think we're as a society experiencing like a level of like just empathic strain of of just like overload of crisis to the point where there's just it, it's kind of like you know like when people are joking about like the whole alien things about like how nobody can pay attention to that because nobody can pay their rent you know you mean like they keep trying to distract us with weather balloons or reports of aliens and we just like don't even have enough traction for that yeah it's like i think there's just so much overlapping things going on that i don't think people are paying much attention to this anymore unfortunately i think it's just oh another fire that's just what we're used to now and that's deeply depressing but i think that's how i feel people feel <laughs> so, like, we went there right off the bat <laughs> yeah sorry I'm, I'm 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 in a state today in case that's not clear i'm just to give people an idea of the extent of it is not just another fire though i know people might be feeling like that but the Northwest Territories, you're talking about like two over 260 fires are burning. And one just needs to look at some of the things people have posted in terms of the maps of the live fires to give you an idea. Like these are urban centers completely surrounded. And it's one thing for us not to care, but it's another thing also for the media not to tell us. Not in some sort of conspiratorial way, but how do... Most of us not know that entire towns in the Northwest Territories have already burnt to the ground. Like, they're gone. Like, the town of Enterprise is just not there anymore. Even with the ability to tie it into the more hyped-up fires that made international news in Maui, still, this is kind of like back-page news. It's, maybe it's, yeah, it's just become so normal that we are losing communities to fires and that i mean doesn't even touch on the amount of indigenous communities that have been ordered to evacuate consistently during this fire season with very little attention paid to it you have to think of northwest territories as 50 percent of the population is indigenous i feel like that plays into a big part on how like my neighbor did not know that everyone in yellowknife was like we were evacuating a capital city here in Canada. And to me, that's unfathomable. One thing I need to say, too, is just like when it comes to meet the state of media in Canada and we and we know how it is. Um, most of these uh, more rural, remote communities don't have local media. What their local media is, is a CBC. And what it is, it's journalists fresh out of J school who who can't work in the city, but who want to work in the city and who are sent to work out here and they don't have a connection to the local issues and the local cultures. I was just, just last week I was up in, uh, I don't know if I already mentioned on the podcast in another episode, but I was just in Sioux Lookout in Northern Ontario. And at one point when we were in the car, you know, they turn on the radio, it's CBC, the local CBC station. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Doug Ford and the Greenbelt, you know, and, 
obviously we're pissed off about that and we were we we just did an episode on that but i couldn't help to think to myself because all i could see was trauma and and all of these overlapping issues you know a community uh where an explosion left uh, contaminated the local water the entire community had to evacuate they don't have water you know you hear about like the like all, all of the overlapping issues they're facing and i couldn't help think what the fuck are they going to care about the green belt you know the thousand kilometers away and the truth is that their issues don't receive the same coverage even locally right and we're sure as hell never gonna hear about what's going on in their communities you know like we're never gonna hear about like do we know about the diabetes crisis in the indigenous communities maybe we heard something about it but definitely not a lot about it and this is an ongoing issue where and and this is just my own experience coming up because I'm 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 a little flustered right now and I'm angry. But my point being is that this is also a consequence of what of the state of where we've allowed our media to become in Canada. It's coming to where these smaller communities do not have a voice. They don't have an ability to get their message out, to get their struggle out. And it's why a community can burn to the ground and we're never going to hear about it. It's why a community can can lose complete access to water and we're never going to hear about it. These issues need a way to get out there. Another layer on that is the lack of news allowed to be shared, Canadian news being shared on Facebook, right? We're no longer allowed to share that. So a lot of the complaints that have been coming out from folks trying to evacuate or trying to stay on top of what's going on is they depend on Facebook for those announcements, and even we were told, like, the officials in Maui, in response to that fire, one of the ways that they did issue an evacuate, evacuation order was through Facebook. And so a lot of people rely on social media to get their news. And instead, they're just being shown pictures of people's dogs. And, you know, that discourse has, has evaporated as well, at least from that particular platform. So I want to go back to the nature of some of these evacuations and the experiences we've been hearing about and how they play into this anti-capitalist narrative that we love to promote on our Ravel Rants. Because it's like COVID, like many other disasters that occur, it's laid before us how blatantly the system has failed us in terms of creating a support system. Remember, the whole reason we came together as a society is to operate better, to have people experience less want. And here we have remote communities. We're talking about places where the nearest town is one hour, three hours away. A lot of communities are only accessible by plane. And if you think of Canada and the airlines that operate here, how many planes we have at our disposal as a collective, if we controlled our, the resources that we have with, but we don't. And so we have people clamoring from the only available Air Canada flights coming out of there. And although they said it was a glitch or, you know, that would have never happened and they put caps on the, the cost of flights, folks on social media were posting $4,000 flights same day out of Yellowknife after the evacu evacuation order. And so... I don't think there is any disaster that doesn't provide this ample evidence that these folks are literally have no 
care for human life. Like that system just does not have it worked into. And in, in fact, they capitalize on these disasters to make it worse. So, you know, charging more money for flights. Going back to Maui, I'm going to do this. There's so many parallels, so I'll do that throughout the episode. Stories of locals being approached by real estate investors and offered money for their burnt piece of land. And they know it will be rebuilt, but they are preying on people in vulnerable situations, offering them a way out. You have nowhere to live. You have no belongings. Here is some money. Turn over your land. What can you do with it? Everything in your neighborhood is burnt. And they will just end up owning that community, the real estate developers. It'll be gentrified. It'll be that same. There's two Hawaii's, right? Like one for the locals and one for the tourists. And, you know, those lines will be even more obvious. Naomi Klein does a great job, obviously, in disaster capitalism, talking about this. She's even done a more recent piece on the grab for Maui's water that is accelerating during this disaster. And I just wonder how many times people need to see how ineffective capitalism actually is in getting us the things we actually need, right? Like innovation, all of these things, efficiency. There's all these arguments that people use to say that capitalism is the most ideal way to organize us. But yet every time we are in dire straits, we are having to plead with these corporations so I'm trying to find what the federal response has been to these Canadian wildfires that are pushing on Kelowna and Yellowknife. And like I said, I've already displaced many First Nations communities. And Trudeau's main concerns, pleading with the airlines to make sure they don't price gouge folks coming out and securing the telecoms, asking providers to do whatever they can to keep the telecoms running. More arguments for nationalization why is it that these resources are under the control of so few people that aren't then immediately connected to what the people need right then and there, right? Why is there an emergency committee of ministers who then just have to get on the phone with various CEOs and trade political favors and plead for them to respond to the community's needs, right? It's such a fucked up way to organize ourselves. And, you know... When will more people catch on, Santiago? Like, It's so fundamentally baked into the system, and we cannot continue to just tolerate that. It's, and, and you know, like, when, when it comes to, you, you know, you mentioned political favors, right? I mean, the politicians, they know that they're going to look bad if, um, if they're not getting... Um, support services if the people aren't getting these things so these corporations all they have to say is okay you do what i say or we're going to make you look bad we're not going to look bad you're going to look bad you know and so they, they they control all the power every single case they control all the power the fact that there's any charge for, like air canada which is supposed to be you know are, it's supposed to be a nationalized Air, I forgot the word for airline for a second. Sorry. It's supposed to be a nationalized airline. It's charging people in a disaster. I mean, the, the, the other thing, and like I, I just need to mention since we're, we also were talking about Hawaii, I mean, the fact that we, I don't hear nearly enough conversation about how it's ridiculous that Hawaii is even part of the United States. I mean, the history of like, a lot the, of people don't know that history, you know? No. And, and, and not like beyond just Hawaii. I mean, when it comes to when we're talking about Pacific Islands, 
if you look at the Pacific Islands, half of them are, are territory of either the United States, France, or England in some way or another, just so we know just how much colonialism is still alive in these regions. And we know Hawaiians have been, uh, native Hawaiians have been pleading people to not go there for years now that they don't have enough water, that they don't have enough access to these things. And, uh, you know, like you can guarantee that one of the reasons that we're hearing about this is because the rich people who like to go on vacation in Maui and they like the aesthetic of the town of Lahanai and they have warm feelings and memories there, you know, so so they, they care a little bit, but they but they're still seeing it as an opportunity to, to buy it up, to turn it into even more of a playground for for the rich and wealthy. And, and you can guarantee that the native Hawaiians, just like the native Canadians are uh, the native people who live in what is called Canada, are are not the ones being taken care of. And you can see across the north, whether it's northern Ontario, whether or not it's the prairies, whether or not it's the, in, in BC or, or the territories, wherever you look, there are hundreds and hundreds of small communities that have been completely ignored by the federal government. And worse than ignored, they've been actively, um, they, they, they've been actively targeted against and and they there isn't water to provide i mean we talk about clean drinking water and i feel like we don't talk about it enough because these communities still don't have clean drinking water but they're still not clean drinking water in a country that has more lakes than any other country in the world we have an abundance of fresh water they don't have clean drinking water you know like i just want to point out a little bit of hypocrisy there in terms of what we're capable of doing because i was reading to about the fire response, like how do you protect these cities when a fire is coming straight at it? Like what are the firefighters doing? And there's a great article on how they've created one of the biggest systems of above land water distribution in order to have enough water to fight these fires. So quite quickly, they were able to adjust and build infrastructure to protect structures, right? Because we pull the people out. So we're protecting structures, but yet we can't use those same resources to distribute water to communities. I understand it's not the exact same, but it's just that level of innovation, that level of innovation, drive, responsiveness exists. We just choose to apply it differently. I want to talk about the class differences in these evacuations and impacts of the wildfires, particularly on not just urban centers, but communities. From what I've heard from advocates on the ground is there is little to no plan in place for the unhoused community, for the unhoused community members in these areas. So, you know, there are plans on how they will take patients to Alberta and BC, and they've taken the prisoners and found room for them somewhere, probably crammed into some horrible conditions in another prison. But there's really nothing for the folks that are living it rough on the street with no Facebook and no real access to what can be done in terms of their evacuation status. And you saw that in 
Maui as well in Lahaina, where it was like poorer families whose parents were at work and their children were at home with no cell phones or inability to get any alert at all. And the parents were cut off from being able to get into the city at that point from emergency services. And that's how a lot of loss of life occurred. And it's just, it's the same with these remote communities where they're, they're having to rely on airline operators or, you know, private, the goodwill of private people to use their planes. And, and there's really no system in place. There's an eviction happening in Kensington right now. Like I just got the rapid response call. Sorry, I just, I can't focus right now. I just, I need to interrupt. I'm sorry. This is the tiniest park. Like, I, this is like the most hidden park out of the way. Can't bother anyone. Like, it's, it's a parkette. It's not even a park. Like, it's a, there's literally not a single thing on Twitter about it. They, they So, like, when they targeted the church, the church I mentioned, Sonia's Park, is like right, really, really close to the, to the church. When they targeted the church... People headed to Bellevue and to Sonia. So this is them going after the people who moved from the church. They followed them where they went. When will they be satisfied? Like, where can they go? Where is okay? Nowhere? Like, how can you so... It's so fucking obvious they're trying to erase these people. If you don't have anywhere for them to go... If I had Ubered... leave them alone. The second that the chat came in, like the first message came in, I wouldn't have made it in time before they finished. Like, they're so quick, too. Like, they're... Well, they're very proficient at it now. I remember those like are they, unionized workers doing that. But they, they also know that we're organized, you know? They know that we're organized. And so, like, I remember when, when Lamport, like, we knew that Lamport was going to happen, and we knew that, like, Alexandra Park was going to happen. What did they do? They started, like, 5 in the morning, you know? Like, things were already well underway by the time I woke up. And I'm an early riser, you know? Like, they do everything they can to, like, also avoid us. No doubt there are training sessions and conferences that allow police forces and these city folks who think that that's their job to become better at clearing eviction become better at clearing uh, homeless encampments i have no doubt in the same way that we organize and teach better they are because they have been doing this for a long time like i remember when occupy was taken down like they already had their shit together then the way the cops would file in first form like this solid line with their bicycles and other horses and you know, just the amount of bodies that they shipped into that area very quickly. And then city workers getting off buses and vehicles to then come in behind those officers and do the work of dismantling the tents and throwing everything in the trash. Particularly Division 14 in Toronto is so militant. I imagine people request to be in that division who are so interested in that work. 
it's maddening to think like, yeah, the same things that we find disgust in other folks would admire. You know, there's residents that are watching the same thing that is distressing you so much. And they're like, good, finally clean that up. Let's build a garden memorial. And I, it's that, that distance that Diana was talking about that just seems so impossible to close, right? The difference between those two different views seems unbridgeable. And, and so we have to find other ways to appeal to people to make them understand that this is not fucking okay. This is not the way you described it, you know, chasing them from park to park with hardly any rest. The trauma, and I wanted to talk about that in terms of the fires, the displacement that occurs during these evacuations that no one seems like to care about or feel responsible about. Folks just being shipped to like communities they've never been in before and being told to find family or friends to house with. Like as if that's a fucking option for everybody. What a classist approach, you know what I mean? Like to think that some they'll just find somewhere to go. Like I know we don't have any shelter space and I know we only have X amount of hotel rooms for X amount of time before the budget runs out. But as long as they're not in my park. It's also worth mentioning when it comes to these fires and stuff when it's affecting these northern communities, how little resources and like financial resources they have at their disposal, you know? I mean, we I've talked about it before, but like how high food insecurity is in these areas, particularly, again, none of it. Um, but Northwest Territories isn't doing well either, you know? And these flying communities, they have, uh, a lot of them, they have grocery stores where everything is at such a premium that it would... It would be unbelievable, you know. I was part of. I was just doing a the food a food training program about like about how to run cooking classes for your community to help people, you know, become more confident in uh, in, in in preparing food as as a way to combat diabetes. And I can't tell you how like there was this folder that they came with and it had all of these recipes. And I can't tell you like these were incredibly incredibly simple recipes and something that like living in Toronto I would look at and be like well this is about as affordable as it gets and for them it was like oh yeah no we we can't possibly use some of these ingredients it's completely unaffordable you know like basic basic staples you know like you talk about like all vegetables are unaffordable you know except sometimes frozen vegetables but even frozen vegetables Frozen vegetables cost more than, like, our fresh vegetables here, you know. These communities that are struggling with these issues are now having to figure out, okay, well, now we, our community is on fire and we have to figure out how to survive. It's like, you think they have the money for a hotel room for a night? No, quite often the financial aid that anyone gets from the fires that we've had, you know, previously that displaced a lot of folks was basically the cost of a hotel room for one night. But you're talking about remote First Nations communities. There's no hotels to check into until you can get a couple flights out of there. So, like, folks fly out of their community to a staging area right now, and then they're flown out of that to relative safety. But again, completely then displaced from all of the supports that they'd built in those communities. And I just can't imagine, I know we evacuate for our safety, but leaving 
your home behind in those conditions you've already described of living, right? Like day-to-day living is a struggle for everybody. But if your groceries are costing what we're talking about and you live in a remote community that doesn't readily have the services that you need and then you're displaced from all of that and really the government doesn't hold any responsibility to ensuring you get back into your community, Right? The money will be there to rebuild the commercial structures, but quite often folks are left to their personal insurers to rebuild. And yeah, leaving those communities behind or flying out, driving out, and then not knowing what you're going to come back to, that would be horrifying. Driving out is also like, I don't think it's difficult to fathom what driving out means when we're talking about distances that are bigger than most countries. You know, like driving it, like you, you drive all for the, the entire daylight that you have and you're not going to end up anywhere, you know, like. People need to understand, like, they are surrounded by fires in Yellowknife and the only way out is essentially head back north, the closest community being about an hour away. Then you can make your way south to Alberta, but you need to go around Great Slave Lake towards areas that have already been burnt to the ground. So there'll be no supports along that way. The gas stations are few, few if any, and they're going to be logistically, logistical disasters at that point. And, and there's there's no... There's no side roads too, right? Like when I was just in Sioux Lookout, one of the workers was coming from Sudbury to Sioux Lookout, which is a drive and a half, let me tell you. And he mentioned that uh, there was accidents both ways on the one highway there. And it completely shut down his ability to get there. Like he had to wait so long for everything to get cleared up because there was no alternative roads that he could take. That was it. There was the one road to get there and it was blocked both ways, and that was on a normal day. That was just traffic accidents. What do you think happens during evacuations, you know? And that is a huge factor in these wildfires and the loss of human life and the ability to evacuate. Because And they should have learned these lessons back in B.C. when the town of Lytton was raised to the ground. And one of the reasons that folks died or were injured is because of the very few roads out of there and the lack of clear communication from authorities. One, to make sure everybody that lives where there's wildfires knows possible evacuation routes and that they're kept open because that is continuously a problem every time we have these wildfires. And if you look to Maui, the same thing happened. You know, there's a highway out and then there was Front Street, really. The highway was closed for emergency vehicles and impacted by fire, leaving everyone on basically the main street. The ocean runs alongside the ocean in their commercial district, basically. That's where a lot of people passed. They were trapped in their cars, listening to the evacuation order, but with no logistical way out of there. And with the increasing number of fires that we're getting every year and the increased impact to these centers where people live, it's appalling to me that resources haven't been spent to prepare and that they're continually mishandled. Yellowknife is the same, really. There's two, Highway 3 and Highway 5 are how you get out of there. Both of those were closed 
one I think was impacted by fire. And again, emergency vehicles needed to come into the core. And so they were closed the road for that. It only opened Thursday and everyone's got to be out by Friday at noon. We, we, have, we should have structured ourselves better than this, right? That's what's at the root of this. Yes, it's another fire. Yes, it's appalling that 20,000 people need to leave their homes and all of the logistics that go into that. But we absolutely, like, put the climate just an argument aside, like, that we should put resources to making sure that fewer and fewer fires happen. We must know by now that we need to pour resources into making sure that communities like this are well prepared. And we've had enough disasters here in Canada already to have to have known that. And I imagine there's been plenty of inquiries in, and recommendations made on how to prevent this after, you know, that season they had in BC. I imagine hardly any of them have been implemented, especially after what we're seeing in, in Yellowknife and, and the confusion around that. It's just so vicious. Like I'm... I'm right now. I'm a. I'm a keep it real. Like I'm. I'm. I'm having a hard time right now. Um, it's just a lot today, of, of stories. A lot of, things and, and I just, you know, I can't help but think of like these people who have, the actual, power and who have the ability, to do something, the ability to prevent these things, the ability to, stop climate change, to ensure that there are systems put in place so that when disasters happen, people are taken care of. And their priorities are just so different, you know. They see this happening, and and I, I can tell you they're not having the kind of day I'm having listening about this, you know. They're just thinking about money. They're completely disconnected from from the humanity of it all, and it's just really fucking exhausting because they could do something about it. And that's the system that we live in, and it creates that mentality. It creates the conditions that people need to to forget about taking care of each other. But if we really saw it, we would be devastated. You know, like I, I when I, I feel like when I was a kid, I feel like people felt it more than they do now. I feel like we're just so. I said at the beginning of the episode, but we're so burnt out of like looking at disasters but like i remember like when 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 haiti the earthquake in haiti i remember people talked about that for a while you know i remember the 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 rendition of waving flag of all the canadian artists that was meant to raise relief for haiti you know disasters worse than that are constantly happening and we don't we don't care about it like I think people cared about it back then. That wasn't even that long ago. You know, that was what, 2010, 11, something like that, around that era. Um, 13 years ago, <laughs> you know. And now we just don't feel it in the same way, I don't think. And that's just... You know, Some like of I us do. <laughs> I, I remembered, and this is kind of like stupid, but like, you know, I remember in in that song, the rendition of Waving Flag that I was talking about, Drake, back in the day, he, he, he had a verse on it, like, and he said something about like, take a look at where you live, what if it happened there, 
like we have to know the urge to change it lies within like something like that right and i remember as a kid (laughs) like i'm not the biggest drake fan but like i remember that that like it, it hit me hard at the time because i was like yeah what if it happened in my community like we think of these things as so far away and every year it gets closer you know every year these things happen closer and i kind of expected i guess as a kid when i heard that that if it happened here that we would do something about it and now it's happening here and we're not doing anything about it so it's a two-edged sword though those same disasters play into your exhaustion as well Right. So think of all the places that it has happened. And if we were looking at Haiti, the people of Haiti to then fight climate for climate justice after what they had experienced, we would we would chastise ourselves. We'd be like, don't be crazy. That's that's up to the people who aren't struggling to literally survive the next day. And it takes years and years. But I, I get upset with you. When you start looking to those fucking capitalists as I know they hold the resources to do something, but I don't want you looking to them like as though we have to make appeals to them. And I'm 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 just going to put this out there that the wealth inequity that we're experiencing here in Canada and other so-called Western nations, is about equivalent to what it was at the time of the French Revolution. And I will tell you, at no point did those folks look to the ruling class to solve the problem. Um, They are the problem. And I understand that they're human and they've been built in a system that rewards that the very kind of behavior we're finding abhorrent, at least most of us are, but... We need to get them out of the way. So if that's expropriating their resources, fine. If that's exiling them after a revolution, fine. Because there is, we know, sometimes you know no matter what we show them or what they experience, the amount of wealth that is concentrated in their hands allows them to live a lot longer than us no matter what happens. Air filters, relocating fucking $9 billion yachts in the middle of the ocean where no one can bother them. Space travel, right? Like they, they, that is not the path, right? It's, it's waking up all the people around us to take back what we deserve, right? To completely reject the system in which we're living under and understand that it's backwards, at least in terms of what we need to thrive. But it's not them. It's not them that need to experience the smoke or be evacuated from their homes. That I don't think that'll impact them. They're too far gone. They act, you know, I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I do love referring to the fact that there's been studies that do equate the personalities of CEOs to psychopaths, to folks who, who just don't have the ability to experience empathy yeah no and 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 i know that and and i think when i was saying that it was just like i guess it was i don't know a childhood hope of like 
that someone's just gonna do something. Yeah, like. And you're not wrong. You're not wrong. They do. And if we could flip a switch in all of them right now, uh, we could maybe fix this. But I think like environmentalism is the biggest piece of evidence we have that for generations now, there have been emotional and factual scientific appeals to big oil and gas when they already knew. They already knew. They forged ahead knowing the implications. And so simply showing them the results of their profits um, is really of no consequence to them now. They've, they've cashed in and they're going to continue to cash in. It's up to the orcas now. <laughs> I feel like the orcas have their own episode at this point. There's been... <laughs> lots of content there the, the orcas understand what we mean by disruption <laughs> they really <Okay>. do <laughs> i'm gonna channel my inner orca we all we all should and you know I, I have to i have to mention again because you know as we're talking about this i, I need to talk about colonization a, a, a little bit more because you know this land was indigenous land for and and still is but it was under the control for thousands not the control but the i was gonna say i don't think yeah you're viewing that through a colonial lens yeah (laughs) the stewardship for for thousands of years and there wasn't these kind of disasters you know what i mean living in a way where you take care of the land land takes care of you too you know and these are the direct consequences of colonization, of that disconnection from the land that we live on, that cold, efficiency-driven, profit-driven mentality that is unique to these systems. That is, this is the direct result of that. Yeah, if you look to the indigenous experience since time immemorial, it also completely quashes that narrative that humans are some sort of parasite, that it's some sort of human trait to destroy the environment in which we live. Mm -hmm. There are no living things (laughs) On this planet that do, other than humans in the moment, that do that. That is not natural. Everything contributes to its ecosystem in some way or was designed to, and I'm not talking about by God, but the natural. Nature. (laughs) Thank you. Nature is just, that's how it works. We all know this. Even those weeds you think are weeds and bugs that we call bugs because they annoy us, but we do understand that they all play a role in the ecosystem, right? But for some reason, we've been able to swallow this narrative that it's just like humans. So we need to depopulate. We need like a eugenics program to solve the problem when it's capitalism. And greed that is reinforced through that system. 
And yes, there were systems before capitalism, but they were also designed in the same way to completely reward greed and accumulation. These were the thoughts and ideas of a very few, mostly white men that ended up through colonialism largely being disseminated through the planet. But that doesn't make them human nature. No. Right? It's it's not a problem with humanity. It's a problem with our political and economic system. And when you look at it like that, that seems a lot more easy to fix than our humanity. Right? Although I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> no, no. Any but, political yeah, revolution just, will show you that it's not easy finding out what the other side looks like. That's a discussion we also still need to have. But surely we can come to a consensus that this ain't that. Yeah, no. I mean, the human nature argument is so fundamentally flawed. And like the idea that we're meant to live in the society organized in this way. Yeah, really? Like, then why is everyone so freaking depressed? You know, why are we all struggling so much to force ourselves to try and exist in this society in this way? You know, people aren't, aren't happy living this way. This isn't how we're supposed to live. So, like, the appeals to... The, te- appeals to nature technically but like at least human nature it's it's always been such a deeply <laughs> just flawed argument and just such a manipulation um and it's yeah no i don't know what else to say I'm, i don't have all my words today i just have sad and frustration <laughs> I get it, but I like how sometimes, you know, these rants, we start off highlighting kind of a a current issue, a news item that folks have heard about, and it ends up unpacking so much more. And we always end up getting essentially to the same place, right? Reinforcing those anti-capitalist arguments. It all comes back to that. And, you know, like that also needs to be mentioned like it's such a lesson that i mean i think they're learning it but the environmentalism movement still needs to learn that more there's still a lot of environmentalists out there who do not connect the struggle to save the planet with a fight against capitalism there's still a lot of people like that the green party are most top of mind for me they're clear neoliberals with market solutions to a problem that just can't be solved that way. And, and for, for me, those are just, uh, that's wasted energy. And much like the NDP, there's, a, there, there's less now, but there's been a lot of eco-socialists in the Green Party who get that and who have been trying to tell them that. And of course they get suppressed. You know, they get swept under the rug ignored and pushed out so yeah it's not for a lack of trying well here we are bashing electoral politics again (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's all connected it's all a giant web and the web is on fire (laughs) that is a wrap on another episode of blueprints of disruption thank you for joining us also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, 
please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.